This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of God concerning the second commandment. And in connection that, with that, we will read from Lord's Day 35. But before we do that, let's go back one page in our book of praise and just read the second commandment together. The words of the second commandment are this, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then we go to Lord's Day 35. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. In response to the ministry of the word, we will sing afterwards from Psalm 97, the stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear the words of the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or a carved image, it seems as, as if we're just simply being plunged into ancient paganism with all its accompanying idols. And so it might seem that this commandment isn't very relevant to us today. But the truth is that image worship is still very common. If you step into a Hindu temple, for example, in Hamilton or Toronto, you will find many images there. And there are still many cultures today that serve and worship their gods via images. But then you might still say, well, that doesn't really affect us, because we're not in any big danger of switching to one of those pagan religions anytime soon. And we don't have carved images in our homes or in our churches. So why do we need this commandment today? Well, it's important, brothers and sisters, to realize what the heart of this commandment is about. And although it's closely connected to the first commandment, there is a distinction. The first commandment deals with whom we worship, namely the living God of heaven and earth our covenant God who reveals himself to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. And the second commandment deals with the manner in which we serve our God. 
And this remains as important today as in the days of Moses and Israel and the Old Testament church because our God doesn't change. And he wishes to be worshipped not by the means of dumb images, as we confess, but according to his word, according to his self-revelation. And that truth is just as unpopular today as it was in the days of Moses. Many people consider this not to be very important. Today there are many Christians who think it doesn't matter so much how you serve God as long as you serve Him. And this, of course, gives you the freedom to serve Him in the way that you wish, in your own way. Similarly, many say it doesn't really matter where you serve Him, just as long as you do. And this gives you the freedom, of course, to serve God and worship Him in any church that you feel like. But God's Word tells us that this commandment is of great importance. So important, in fact, that there's even a curse attached to it and a promise. God will visit the disobedience against this commandment to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate him. But he will show his steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. God wishes to be served only in harmony with his revealed will. And so I've summarized this sermon with the following theme. The second commandment teaches us that we may only worship God as he has revealed himself in his word. And we will see that this commandment pertains to our personal worship. Secondly, it pertains to our corporate worship as a church. And in the third place, this commandment requires us to bear God's image. To understand this commandment, we need to appreciate what kind of a world that Israel occupied. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses gave the Israelites detailed warnings against the use of images. And that's because for Israel, it was completely counter-cultural to worship God without the use of an image. All the pagan nations around them worshiped their gods through the use of a graven image or a carved image. Even though they understood quite well that these images were deaf and dumb and mute, they were completely lost without the use of these images. They didn't know how else to communicate with their gods. You see, pagans were afraid of their gods. Their gods were were far away. Those gods were unpredictable. You never knew when a god could become angry and, and just turn on you if he was in a bad mood, so you couldn't really trust them. And sometimes those gods were capricious. They would hurt you. They would use you as as if you were just an object for them to play with. Gods were dangerous, so you had to deal with them ever so carefully. And so pagans turned to images to help them keep somewhat of a distance, but at the same time to feel closer to their gods. The graven image was the representation of their god. In this way, the god who was far away would become sort of tangible and real. The image of the god became the means by which the worshiper could communicate with his god. Without the image, those gods were still far away, still somewhat 
to be afraid of. But how different was the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was and is Yahweh, the God of the covenant. And he's not capricious or unpredictable. He is the Lord. He is the Father of his people. He's the Lord who comes to his people with his covenant love and with his covenant promises. (coughs) He doesn't wait for his children to come to him. (coughs) Excuse me. The Lord doesn't wait for his children to come to him. No, instead, he comes to his children. He's the God you can count on. That's how he revealed himself to his children. He has revealed who he is in his word, and his actions prove that his revelation is true. Just think of what he says to his people in the preamble of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, I am your Lord and your Savior. I have kept the promises that I made to your fathers. You are my children. I have set my love on you. That's why I freed you from slavery and brought you to this land flowing with milk and honey. That's why I give you these commandments, so that you you may know how to serve me, so that you can live in communion with me. That's why I taught you to offer sacrifices that come from the heart, to offer prayers that rise to heaven, along with the smell of the incense from my altars. You don't need an image to climb up to heaven, because I, the Lord your God, have come down to you. I have come to earth to communicate with you. And brothers and sisters, nowhere is that more evident than in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, God the Father has revealed himself to his children. Jesus showed us in a way that no one ever could how much the Father loves us and wants to communicate with us. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you see how essentially Different Israel's worship and our worship is from any pagan worship. We don't have to find ways to communicate with God. We don't have to look for ways to reach out to our Heavenly Father. Through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we we are intimately united with our God. He reaches out to us before we even think about reaching out to Him. And we don't have to come up with ways of communicating with our God. He himself has provided the way. He has adopted us as his children by grace. And he's not a God who can be manipulated or cajoled and flattered. That's another reason why pagans use images. They believe they can influence their gods by these images. If you can somehow channel the power of your gods through an image, then you you can manipulate them. And perhaps, perhaps even have a small amount of control over your god. It's like you, you need to have an extension cord to have access to electricity for your power tools. 
So pagan worshipers used idols to to plug into the power of their god. An idol acts like a transformer, channeling power to the worshiper. And if this idol has that much power, well, the next step is that you start worshiping the idol itself. Then the idol becomes your god. And so you see that disobedience to the second commandment automatically, or almost always, automatically becomes disobedience to the first commandment. And that is why the Lord forbids His people to make, the u- make use of images. We may not restrict the Lord to a dumb and useless idol. He wants to be served and worshipped in the manner that He has prescribed in His Word. He wishes to be believed and to be obeyed for who He is and for who He has revealed Himself to be. This is evident from our reading in Deuteronomy chapter 4. There Moses reminded Israel of how God had revealed Himself on Mount Sinai. And he said, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he goes on, therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. The Lord only wants to be served in faith. But Israel did fall into the trap of trying to manipulate God. Shortly after they they received the law at Mount Sinai, Moses stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites convinced Aaron to make a golden calf for them. They wanted gods that would go before them because they did not know what had happened to Moses. In their minds, Moses was no longer available to communicate with God, so they needed a replacement. And later in their history, they repeated that sin. 1 Samuel chapter 4, I'm sure you know the story. We read there that they were fighting against the Philistines, and they lost the battle on the first day, so what did they do? They asked Hophni and Phinehas to get the ark out of the tabernacle and bring the ark into the battle with them. Somehow they they thought that God was attached to this golden box, They thought they could force God to help them. After all, if he was defeated, he would jeopardize his own safety and reputation. They were acting like pagans. In their minds, they had God in a box, and they figured that if they pulled the right strings, then God would have to fight for them. So what's the root of the problem here? Is it the carved image? Not really. The root of the problem is that behind the carved image is a sinful mental image of who God is. You can't make an image unless you first imagine in your mind what that image should look like. If you imagine your God to be strong, then you, then you make an image of a bull. That's what the Egyptians and the Canaanites did, and so did Israel. If you want your God to bring security and fertility, then you worship the sun or Mother Earth. If you don't like what the Bible says about the wrath of God against sin, then you just serve a God of love. But God says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? Isaiah 40, verse 18. 
when we presume to make an image of God according to our own imagination, that simply becomes a mockery of who God is, a caricature, an insult to who He is. Because all your mental images of God restrict God to to just certain characteristics of your own choosing. Now, we might not have graven images in our homes, and we might not have graven images in our churches, but we are nonetheless very susceptible to, to carving images of God in our own mind. We carve mental images of God. Just think about it. Boys and girls, you too. If you tell a dirty joke, what are you really saying about God? Aren't you thinking that God isn't really there? He can't hear you? Because if you could see God standing right next to you, would you still dare tell that joke? But you imagine Him to be far away for a few moments so that you can get away with telling that dirty joke or looking at a few dirty pictures. You confess that God is omnipresent, but you act as if He can't hear you or see you, just like a blind and deaf and dumb idol. And what are you saying about God when you think that He's not really very concerned about sin? That He doesn't care, maybe, that you steal from your boss by wasting time? That He doesn't care about whether or not you waste your talents by spending hours every day on social media just trying to entertain yourself? Do we try to put God in a box so to speak, by, by making Him part of our life on Sunday or, or when we pray at mealtimes, but then, then we leave Him out of the rest of our lives. So many people think that God loves everyone. But is that really true? It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking God is just like us, as we sang from Psalm 50. That just because He doesn't rain down fire from heaven all the time, He must be condoning sin. But God is not silent, brothers and sisters. He speaks to us and He warns us in His Word. His wrath does fall on those who do not obey Him. Did He love everyone who drowned in the flood? Of course not. What about those who died in Sodom and Gomorrah? Did God love all those people? Certainly not. So let's not make a false image of God in our own minds. And that is why we confess in our catechism that we may only worship God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And that covers all of life. Every part of our life. However, this confession doesn't only cover our private life, it also covers the way we worship as a church. We've done away with images in our churches because our churches have grown out of the tradition of the Great Reformation. It's good that we remind ourselves of that history. The early Christian church continued on the foundation built by the apostles. Through the mouth of the apostles, people heard the voice of Christ, but they saw no form. 
The apostles didn't travel around with pictures of Jesus, and they weren't showing Jesus' videos. They simply preached the Word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. And in those days, that was very countercultural. Roman and Greek and other pagan religions had many gods, and they worshipped them via images. But the church simply taught that Christ came to save sinners. But over time, the church slowly caved into the pressure of surrounding culture. Pictures and images of saints and of Mary were introduced. Along with a pagan way of treating those images, people would honor those images by, by kissing them, venerating them. And then it didn't take long before they worshipped those images and prayed to them. And by the Middle Ages, the, the use of images was widespread. Instead of a pantheon of, of pagan gods, the church had a pantheon of saints. Ministers were called priests, and they acted and they dressed like pagan priests. And people came to church not to hear, hear the word preached, but, but to watch the, the priest perform a religious ceremony. And the church in those days was, was more than willing to allow new converts to mix their, their pagan practices with the worship of the church, as long as they submitted to the authority of the church and of the pope. That was all fine. <clears throat> the Great Reformation, of course, brought the true preaching back to its centrality, to the forefront of proper Christian worship. Through men like Martin Luther and Calvin and John Knox and others, the church returned to worship around the Word of God. God was once more the center of attention. The great rediscovery of the Reformation was that God reveals Himself to His people through His Word. It is through His Word that God comes to His people. Romans 10, for example, we read that the, our God is the God who speaks to His people. And this is what needs to shape our worship. How can someone call on the one whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The Apostle Paul writes. And so that's why one of the great battle cries of the Reformation was back to the Bible. For the Reformers, Scripture was central to their convictions, and therefore preaching once more became central to the worship. However, it seems we're not ever satisfied with that. Today also there is a movement away from the centrality of preaching in the worship services. Many churches are experimenting with new liturgies, new music, visual presentations, celebrity speakers, that seems to be the way to go. Now, we don't have to question their motives, but we can make some observations that the impetus for this is usually because of fear. Fear of losing people, fear of being seen as not being with the times, fear of being countercultural. And then what happens? Well, the focus shifts from God to the people. 
The focus is less on the Word and more and more on on what can stimulate and excite an audience. At the same time, we should not just be warned about the trends around us or the trends that might be creeping into the church. We also have to be careful that our own traditions and our own rituals don't become images by which we serve our God. We too have our forms and our traditions. And they are necessary, but they could become an end in and of themselves. And so the danger of formalism is also very real. As if only going through the motions of making profession of faith and worship and use of the sacraments would save us. We should ask ourselves, is it possible for us to love the Reformed faith more than we love God? Is it possible for us to love the church and the doctrine of the church more than we love God? Having the form of godliness but denying its power. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5. Religion itself can become a graven image. Perhaps it's possible for us to even have a Canadian reformed image of God. Let that never become true of us, congregation. Let's stick closely to the Word of God, the Word of life, God's self-revelation, which determines how He wants to be worshipped. And what is it that God wants from His church? He wishes His people to be taught by the living preaching of His Word. It was the preaching of the Gospel that shook the world. It was via the preaching of the apostles and their disciples that the church grew and spread throughout the Roman Empire. And it became the officially accepted religion within 300 years. And it was the rediscovery of preaching that again shook the world in the 1500s and by which the church spread throughout the Western Hemisphere. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that wakes people up. Today, the church must be on guard against the desire to accommodate itself to modern culture, but it must also be on guard against the temptation to formalism. Both of these are false and sinful images that we can fall into. What must we do instead? Well, instead of carving images of God in our minds, we must be, as Christians, consciously aware of our calling to be image bearers of God and of Christ. Let's remind ourselves again of what we already confessed in Lord's Day 32. Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit to be His image, so that with our whole life we show ourselves thankful to God for His benefits and that he might be praised by us. And that's also what the second commandment calls us to do. We must image God and Christ. That's what we were created for in the first place. That's what we are recreated for in Christ. God desires to have the full commitment of his children. He has made himself known to us in the intimacy of of the covenant of grace. And he desires to have an intimate relationship with his children through that covenant. 
and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He has expressed that desire for intimacy in a profoundly deep way. The Lord Jesus is the only image of the invisible God. He is the Word who dwelt among His people. And therefore, all covenant worship must be centered on the preaching of that Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when that intimacy is broken, then God's jealousy is aroused. And in His jealousy, He will visit the sins of the fathers upon the children. When we do not worship the Lord according to His revealed will, and we do not allow ourselves to be taught according to the living preaching of His Word, then the consequences will be felt for generations to come. Why is that, you might ask? Well, that's because if you don't image God, and if you don't image the Lord Jesus Christ the way you should, then your children are going to get the wrong image of who God is, aren't they? Just think about it. Your children don't just learn by, about God by what you teach them, what you say about God, reading Bible stories or how you pray. They also learn about God from your actions. If you lie, if you gossip about your neighbors, if you abuse your spouse or your children, what image of God are you communic- communicating to your children? then you're teaching your children that it, that it doesn't matter what you do because God isn't really looking anyway. And since, since you seem to be getting away with, with doing what you want, God must not care. So what image of God will your children take away from that? They will think that God is not a God who's there every day. God is not a Father who cares. And they won't take Him for real. And then it won't matter either that you still take your kids to church, send them to catechism class and a Christian school, because whatever they learn there will be crushed by the false image that you as parents portray at home. And then, then we shouldn't be surprised either if they drift away from God and from His church. How I, as a parent, serve the Lord has great and serious and long-lasting consequences for my children. If I ignore the Word of God in my home and in the church in which I worship, then my children will be affected. Whatever deformation I allow in my life will continue and grow in the lives of my children. Just think, for example, of how the actions of Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, affected his people. He introduced the worship of the golden calves in Israel, and his dynasty was cut off because of that sin. That sin which was mentioned more than 20 times in the Old Testament. Because that's the main reason why God punished Israel as a nation. And yes, it's true, we are all responsible for our own sins. And it can also happen that a child of God-fearing parents goes astray. It can also happen that a child of unbelieving parents becomes a Christian and turns to the Lord. 
But in the second commandment, we are particularly warned that the way in which we image God has serious and long-lasting consequences throughout the generations. When parents are careless in their service to the Lord, the children will be too. But if parents are diligent and careful to teach their children, then we may expect God's blessing. Then he will show his steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. God promises to bless those who live by his word. That is his covenant promise to those who fear him. Those who live according to God's word will be preserved in the covenant. Those who allow God's word to to work in their lives, they may expect his blessing. The blessing of life and peace. Brothers and sisters, let us continue to look to our Lord and our Savior. He made God's image known to us in his grace and his love. He served his Father in full harmony with God's will. He fulfilled all the righteousness of the law. And he did that for all those who love and fear the Lord. So let us continue to seek God and to seek his grace and his Holy Spirit so that as image bearers of our Lord Jesus Christ, as image bearers of God, we can worship God as he has revealed himself in his word. Amen.